Welcome to Climate Optimus. I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Todd Deshida. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. If you'd like to help us grow as a pod, tell your friends about us and have them follow us. As wildfire season in the western U.S. grows longer and more severe, we decided to focus in on the role of climate change in exacerbating the situation and what can be done to make our forest landscapes more resilient. I don't know about you, but it feels like fire has become its own season in recent years. Oh man, yeah, it's been crazy. I was thinking back to 2020 where we were socked in for days with smoke and I had two box fans running in the living room and then I remember lifting the HEPA filter from behind the box fan and there was just this black mark. Oh yeah, I bet there was. I mean, I remember looking out the window at the house, you couldn't see, you know, two houses away. It was so smoky. We started out that weekend, this is kind of a first world problems. We're vacationing in the Hamptons and it interrupted. No, we were vacationing (laughs) at the coast and happened to pick that weekend. And the first day we got out there, it was beautiful and clear. And then those fires hit, man, and it changed everything out there. Like we lost power. You couldn't see the ocean hardly anymore. I mean, it was, it was just crazy. And then of course we had to come home because somehow we're, we're in zone two evacuation. It's not like you live in a little cabin in the woods. Yeah, we're like just in a metropolitan area here, so it was pretty crazy. Yeah, I I can't imagine folks who, you know, of course, lost their homes or folks who have respiratory issues and trying to breathe in that. Well, maybe we should throw in a little hope here. I suppose. Um, Well, you know, COP26 is going on, the UN Climate Summit in Glasgow, and a group of countries and manufacturers have agreed to phase out fossil fuel vehicles by 2040 which is a pretty big deal. Some car makers that were involved in that are Ford, GM, Volvo, and Daimler-Benz. It's pretty remarkable. I don't know if a couple of years ago, if you'd have told me that they would be making a pledge like that, I think I would have told you you're crazy. So I, obviously, you know, they've seen the writing on the wall and taken some big steps here. In Sweden, India, and Poland are some of the countries that signed up for this. Unfortunately, missing from that is uh, China, in the U.S. and Germany, which that's unfortunate. It is, sure. and you know, I think also what was it, Toyota and Volkswagen, as make automakers didn't sign on either. That's disappointing. But to your point, it's a start. Yeah. And you know, while GM and Volvo had already made pledges to sort of phase out fossil fuel cars by you know 2030, 2035. Right. Having Ford step in is a big deal. Yeah, I heard that. They made Boris Johnson walk home or something the other day from Glasgow or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> they made him ride a bike or something. I, I think it wasn't the greatest thing when he decided to take a private jet chartered <laughs> for 400 miles from Glasgow to London to Jeez. get back for some private event in the middle of a climate conference. I think there was maybe a little bit of deflection there, but it seems like he maybe got the point since he came back on a train. Yeah. Well, what's his deal on this climate thing? Is he generally in support of this stuff? He says he is okay. uh, and seems to be wearing the cape of climate advocate. I don't care if he's wearing just his underwear as long as he gets something done. <laughs> <laughs> so our guest today to help educate us on strategies to make our forest more resilient is Camille Ruman stevens Camille is a fire ecologist and faculty member at Colorado State University, as well as an assistant director of the Colorado Forest Restoration Institute. She obtained her undergraduate degree in biology and environmental studies from Brandeis University. If I'm botching that, apologies to all folks 
at Brandeis University and attended graduate school at both University of Northern Arizona and University of Idaho. Between her degrees, she worked as a hotshot wildland firefighter for several years. Wow, that's awesome. I'm really excited to hear what she has to say about wildfires. Camille, welcome to Climate Optimist. Thanks for having me. Yeah, excited for this discussion. So as we do with all of our guests, wanted to start you out with the question, when you think about efforts to address climate change, you know, what, what makes you hopeful? Yeah, so as an ecologist, I feel really hopeful about ecosystems because they're so amazing and so adaptable. And so even as we're faced with these really big changes that's happening to our ecosystems, I find hope in the in the way that our ecosystems can recover and, and may look different. They may look very different than what we have right now, but I find hope that we're not going to some wasteland of a place, right? There is still <laughs> going to be plants there. There's still going to be ecosystems thriving and surviving there. And so I think that's the thing above all else that makes me really hopeful is that we live in these very adaptable landscapes that are probably going to continue to adapt as we are faced with climate change. I like that take. I think, yeah, at the end of the day, I suppose it's going to be, you know, the humans that have the hardest challenge to adapt to it. So let's start with a basic question. How is, you know, climate change impacting or forecasted to to impact our forests? And caveating that we're, you know, in this case, talking about, you know, Western U.S. forests. Yeah. So I think when I think about Western U.S. forests, you know, I'm a fire ecologist specifically. And so I think a lot about not only how those ecosystems are responding to climate change, but specifically in the context of wildfires. And so in this case, one of the things that's really happening with climate change and fire interacting is that both climate is impacting how fires are burning, and that therefore influences those subsequent ecosystems. But it also changes how ecosystems can respond to those disturbances in and of themselves. So it's kind of a twofold um, interaction where we see an increase in the size and severity and perhaps frequency of fires. And then we also see a change in what can recover from those fires or how, how they're going to recover because of climate change itself. Yeah, it sounds like a pretty complex set of interactions when you're thinking about it, big picture. So in that light, what can be done to make our forests, you know, more resilient as we're thinking about, you know, climate change and more severe and potentially more frequent fires? Yeah. So I think, you know, especially in the Western U.S., and this is true for many of the forests around the world, really, they've been heavily impacted by people, right? And in our case, in the Western U.S., one of the big impacts that we've had is fire suppression. And if we try to make these ecosystems more resilient to climate change, one of the big things we can do is actually reintroduce fire. Because if we can control what those fires look like across the landscape, then we're less likely to have that next big catastrophic large fire. Because I don't think we're going into a world of less fire globally, but we are going into a world of where we can we can either master the, those fires or really be controlled by them. Um, there's a great Finnish proverb that says, fire is a bad master, but a good servant. And I think that really applies here when we think about the resilience of these fire-adapted forests to climate change is they need to continue to have these disturbances that help that help them in many ways, right? They clear out the brush, they decrease the density of the trees, which makes them more resilient and resistant potentially to drought. And all of those factors also lead into being less 
likely to have another fire or another really large severe high severity fire and i think that at least in the in the moderate term here as we experience all these climatic changes it's really continuing to allow those old individuals to survive that's going to give us those seed crops and the potential for us to continue to have forests that's interesting so by reducing the number of them you're actually making them more resilient to uh, to drought, which is obviously another thing that we're, you know, facing with climate change or more, you know, more severe and, and frequent dry spells. Yeah, absolutely. So when we think about management practices that focus on making forests more resilient to wildfire, how do those differ from practices that are basically leveraging the forest to sequester more carbon? Yeah, so carbon sequestration is an interesting one, especially when we talk about our western U.S. forests, you know, you're in Oregon, which certainly has a hot, much higher potential to sequester carbon because you live in a much more productive place. Here in Colorado, where I am, we really don't have that high of productivity in our forests. So in terms of carbon sequestration, we're not the best, you know, and, and that's true for a lot of kind of our, our arid forests in general. So that's one thing to think about in this discussion, because I think there's often an expectation for a lot of people that we are talking about these huge carbon sinks like we would expect in the Amazon or something like that. But that's really not the case for many of our forests. And then to your question, I think we have this great opportunity to think about fire and carbon sequestration with a similar aim in mind. And there's efforts to do that in places like California, where there is a carbon market Assuming there is no fire, absolutely, our forests can continue to hold more carbon. But as we've seen in places even like Canada that has a really robust carbon market, many of their forests have actually switched from being carbon source sinks to carbon sources because of wildfires. There's been some really cool studies that shown that we can actually hold more carbon on the long term if we do things like mitigate some of that fire risk by reducing the density and allowing prescribed fires or some fire use, because it's that more open forest that has been maintained by fire or forest treatments that's going to reduce the likelihood of that catastrophic fire that you lose all the carbon to. And so in that way, over the long term, you're keeping more carbon stored, even if you're losing some to those smaller fires or to that uh, those forestry practices. So the two aren't necessarily working at odds with one another, but there's there's sort of a, a balance point to find, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. And there's been some, you know, really cool watershed scale studies that have talked about what is that tipping point where you still are gaining carbon and really promoting the growth of the trees that are still there while mitigating the fire risk. So knowing that a forest managed for maximizing carbon sequestration and for, you know, minimizing wildfire risk aren't totally dissimilar. I wonder if you can help us picture sort of what, what does a forest look like that's, you know, in that, that state of balance? Yeah, so I think, you know, one of the things that's going to reduce fire risk is those bigger, older trees that have really high crown base heights. So those lower branches are higher up on the trees and they're spread out right? So you're reducing the chance of even if one tree lights on fire, the subsequent ones aren't going to. From a carbon perspective, we want more of that landscape to be covered in trees. And so I think this is becomes a balancing act of what that ecosystem can support, but also where we can minimize fire risk. And, and this is still something that I think we're trying to figure out because 
the traditional forestry practices that many are probably familiar with is to plant trees in really high densities, right? Or allow trees to grow naturally in really high densities, at least at first. But in that scenario, that's where you have those high fuel loads and you have the potential for for higher fire danger. Some, some folks are experimenting with different plantings where maybe you have a clumps of trees or uh, those plantings are more spread out. Uh, and that allows for actually more growth of those trees early on, right? Because they're not competing. They can just grow happily, taking up all that water, being really, really content in that landscape. And then that gives them the potential to both sequester more carbon and have lower fire danger. So I think that's definitely helpful to kind of picture what those that forest might look like that's in that balanced state. I'm wondering, you know, as we look at two of the tools you've talked about, you know, thinning and prescribed burns, when does it make sense to sort of use the two together or separate from one another, depending on the life stage that the forest sits in? Yeah, so many of the trees that are fire resistant, like ponderosa pine or Douglas fir that we often think about across the Western US, as they grow older, they become more fire resistant. So it's not helpful to have a prescribed fire go through a forest that's pretty young, right? Because the as they grow older, they grow thicker bark and that makes them more fire resistant. So in a very young stages of forest, it's definitely beneficial to do thinning. And then as, as you kind of progress into older forests or over mature forests, then you really do want to th- thin out some of those understory trees that are kind of growing and have been allowed to grow because of fire suppression. And in that case, allowing a fire to go through there and kill some of those trees is benefiting those larger trees that are perhaps surviving those that that prescribed fire. So it's, you can use them certainly separately, depending, like you said, on the life stage. If it's a really young forest, then you want to only use a thinning uh, or mechanical treatments. And then when you get to those older stages of forest, sometimes you need thinning to ensure that those, some of the trees aren't going to die when you have a prescribed fire, because we have some forests that are so dense that if, if you put a fire in there, even under the best, you know, coolest, moistest conditions, you're still going to get high tree mortality. And so that's when we need a combination of those factors. But then if you already have an open forest, you can really continue to be maintained using a prescribed fire only. Gotcha. That's super helpful. So, you know, it sounds like regardless, we've got a ton of work ahead of us in terms of being able to make our forests, you know, more resilient and kind of help them find that balance point. Are there, you know, policy mechanisms that can help you know, from your perspective, accelerate the adoption of those types of practices that we need? Absolutely. I mean, I think in terms of policies and both public perceptions, we have to be more comfortable with fire, right? We have, we live in these burnable landscapes. And for most of European settler history, we've been really good at suppressing them. And we need to kind of readopt those mindsets that were prevalent across our landscapes. When Uh, indigenous people were the predominant land managers. And that is using fire for many uses. And that isn't just prescribed fire, that's allowing wildfires to burn under those less extreme conditions. So to give you some stats, we have a huge firefighting force, right? Our fire suppression activities in the Forest Service accounts for over 64% of the Forest Service budget, the total Forest Service budgets, depending on the year. And that amounts to us successfully suppressing 98% of all fires that start, 
So it's only that 2% that's making the headlines, that's burning the majority of our landscapes, that's really shaping our perception. And so if we allowed those other 98%, most of which are burning under conditions we can control because we've successfully put them out, we might be able to treat more of these landscapes at a grander scale. Because right now we are treating our landscapes. They're just being treated by these really large fires. And we want to change that to being treated by smaller fires that are burning under the conditions we want. So to me, that's one of the big, the first big things. I think the other thing that does, you know, give me hope in in this mindset of how we treat landscapes is this um, is our the infrastructure bill that just passed because that does have a lot of forest management components to it uh, and a lot of it has to do with how do we mitigate fire risk so that we can do be better forest managers and potentially sequester more carbon but I think you know the big first step is all of us accepting that fire is an essential part of our landscapes and being more comfortable with it being um, being more prevalent than just these big catastrophic events. So it, it sounds like it may be in a future state, you may have a situation where a fire pops up and it's in the, maybe it's in the fall when things are cooling off or it's in the spring or it's in an area that it isn't as sort of tinderbox dry. And in those cases, making the conscious decision to, to let that fire burn. Absolutely. Yeah. I think I have a colleague who likes to ask people, uh, how do you like your smoke? Right. We're not, again, we're not going into an era of less fire, but we ought, we can control what that looks like. Right. We don't have to breathe in smoke really intensely for weeks and months. And, you know, here in Fort Collins, 2020 was a terrible year for smoke. We just sat in it all fall. It felt like Mordor every other day. <laughs> um, but we can contrast that with having kind of those less intense smoky days that are more spread out. Yeah, that makes sense. When, especially given the reality that this is only set to get worse if we don't step to address it. So, you know, either way, it sounds like it's going to be a challenge to ramp up efforts to implement these practices and better manage our forests beyond just knowing it's going to take a lot of time and effort. Are there, you know, major challenges you see in terms of being able to implement things like prescribed burns beyond public being concerned about smoke? Yeah. So, you know, as I mentioned before, I think the number one thing is public perception because that drives a lot of the decisions that get made, right? If, if I live in a community that's very fire averse, I, as a fire manager, I'm not going to likely start a fire uh, in that community because that's putting a lot of risk and eyes on me in a, in a potentially negative light. But then I think the other things that we uh, that are really big challenges are we have that huge firefighting fire suppression force, but because of how we arrange it, I could be a firefighter here in Colorado that has really great potential prescribed fire windows right now or in the last month. But my whole crew is in California fighting a fire that because they're still in an active fire season. So to me, I think one of the, the other challenges is creating not just a fire suppression force, but a fire use force one that is focused on that use of wildfires, that, that per, those prescribed fires over, you know, this fire suppression mindset. Because, it, of course, we need wildland firefighters to be in places with active wildfires and we ship them there. You know, I can I used to be on a crew in New Mexico and I fought wildfires in almost every western U.S. state. That's great. And that I think that's needed. But that also leaves those places that maybe are in prime condition for burning without the resources to make it happen. There's also, uh, I think, uh, more and more need for if 
you're a homeowner or a landowner out uh, that has acreage, you know, have those fire qualifications, talk to those communities that you live in to, to be an available resource when your neighbors decide they're going to do a prescribed fire. Honestly, I think most humans are pyromaniacs in some way or another, and it's fun <laughs> to go out and actually participate in that in a productive way. Um, so I think that's a challenge, but also a potential for a lot of fun. I'm not encouraging anybody to go light fires without the proper permissions of the of your right. the associated powers that be. But it is a fun um, it is fun to participate in those things. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I I think about growing up on a farm and I think every farmer who has, you know, been involved in like burning a wheat field has a little bit of pyromaniac in them. So, <laughs> so I can definitely relate there. And, and it makes sense that you'd want to take advantage of, you know, the, the folks that are already there in the community. So looking kind of into the future and you've talked a little bit already about some of the research that's being done, but I'm wondering, you know, when it comes to making our forests more resilient and, you know, maximizing their carbon storage potential, are there still, you know, some pretty critical questions that we're trying to, to answer? Yeah, I think a lot of the questions that I think about a lot anyway, and you, of course, would get a different answer on this question to any ecologist that you ask. You know, with climate change and these disturbances, our, our ecosystems are changing a lot. And like I said at the beginning, I, I'm very hopeful. But I also think that there's certain uh, certain places and certain things that we're going to have to be more proactive and direct that change if we want certain outcomes. And that's weird as a, as a scientist to really be thinking about what is our social desires for a landscape. Uh, but I think a lot of the unknowns around that is, you know, what is the limitations of different species? For example, you know, I obviously study forests and am passionate about forests, even though I, I don't want to speak negatively about grasslands and shrublands. Certainly trees are my, are my jam. And <laughs> if I really want a forest in a place that I love, right, I might need to be thinking about other trees that serve the same function. And we don't have a great idea of how adaptable different species are. We've gotten really good at testing their drought tolerance. But I think one of the things we don't truly understand is their cold tolerance. Because maybe I, I want to move a species, say, from southern New Mexico up to southern Colorado, because now that seems like maybe the right climatic window. But it might still have those really cold days now, even though they won't be occurring in 2050. And so we, d we don't have a good sense of, you know, what those, what those needs are of all of these, all these individual species. And then I think there's a lot of moral and you know, social questions that are valid in terms of like, do we want to move them? Do we accept that there's going to be this change? And should I just be okay with it not being a forest? Uh, or should should we be doing some of this? And there's a lot of a lot of reasons to and, and against. And I think that needs to play out on a on a really big scale, because we are dealing with these really big changes. Yeah, I don't, I don't envy you in having to get involved in those sort of decisions. It sounds like I could get really complex quickly. And I can imagine that whether we're thinking about forests or, or grasslands or the ocean, in some respect, we're probably going to be forced to make these sort of decisions and, you know, better to be proactive and thoughtful about, you know, what needs to be done or what could be done than to sort of wait and then you're at the mercy of whatever, you know, climate change is going to bring. Yeah, Absolutely. I think there's a there's a nice scientific framework 
that's called um, the RAD framework. It's resist, accept, or direct, you know, thinking about whether or not you should try to resist those changes. And so that's a lot of that prescribed fire discussion. Are we accepting whatever change comes because of it, or are we directing it to be some future adapted ecosystem? Um, and what does that look like? And I think that there's probably places that all three are valued and all three are needed. Right. And probably I'm guessing in some cases you, you know, and I'm, I'm a fan of trees, I should say, but in some cases you might be, you know, facing the reality that, that grasses are going to be what's able to, to work in a particular area just because of the, you know, change in precipitation or, or what have you. But then it sounds like maybe in certain places you have the ability to choose more. And so then it becomes a question of what outcomes do you want to see and what's going to be resilient into the future, knowing, you know, directionally where things are headed. Yeah, absolutely. So Camille, I could probably continue to talk with you about this for hours, but thank you so much for coming on and sharing your knowledge with us. Uh, I can definitely see the opportunity for a, for a follow-on discussion as we get a smarter route for us. So thank you for that. And thank you for the, the work that you're doing to help us become more resilient in the face of climate change. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun to talk. I don't know about you, but I feel like after my interview with Camille, I might need to revisit my relationship with uh, Smokey the Bear. While we don't want to be starting fires, clearly there are places where fire is a good thing, and I feel like that wasn't part of Smokey's message. No, I can't remember the name of the comedian. Was it? It's not Mitch Hedberg. His joke was, I remember being a kid, and he's like, and Smokey the Bear said, only you can prevent forest fires. And he was like, <laughs> Me? <laughs> but but I think he was yeah I mean he was definitely sort of this icon and and I think not that there isn't utility to Smokey still today sure. but as a kid you got this impression that like all fire was bad and yeah right I, I definitely enjoyed uh, the interview there's one takeaway I got from it Camille is probably a pyro <laughs> I got the feeling that she likes fire a little bit too much. <laughs> and I think if there's any arson in Fort Collins, probably should be looking at her alibi on that when she started talking about how we we're all pyros. But in all seriousness, you know, I felt like there was definitely a hopeful message about adaptation that I was, you know, was pleasantly surprised to kind of hear. And it was obvious, too, that uh, we need to really kind of work more at forest landscape management and fire management, I guess you would call it rather than spending so much effort at trying to do fire suppression. And I think it's obvious that we've been finding out over the years that kind of our last 100 years of just trying to suppress fire hasn't necessarily worked out that well. And it's pretty expensive. What did she say? 64% you know, of the Forest Service budgets spent trying to fight fires. And that's astronomical. And I know that you looked at some budget stuff and some numbers, and I was curious to see what you kind of found. I did do some digging, you know, when she mentioned the infrastructure bill, and it looks like there is about $5.4 billion that will be able to be allocated to some, you know, form of risk reduction, right? you know, forest health, et cetera, which is, which is a good thing. The Nature Conservancy did a great analysis of kind of the existing state of funding for, you know, fire risk reduction. Mm-hmm. And they talked about, you know, the advanced modeling that the Forest Service has and the 51 million acres 
of kind of high risk area that they've identified. And the, their analysis is really comprehensive, but the, you know, the cliff notes were in order to treat those high risk areas and really bring down the risks that we have to, to wildfire and, and that wildfire urban interface that we need to be looking at an annual spend of somewhere between five and six billion for roughly the next 10 years. You know, initially that sounds like a really big number, right. but the 2018 fire season cost the state of California between direct and indirect on the order of $150 billion. Just for the one season? Just for the one season. Wow. I mean, my basic takeaway was if you look at California and obviously there are many other Western states that are experiencing huge losses as well, <laughs> that five to six billion a year is not a big investment. It's clear that this infrastructure bill is a good shot in the arm. What I don't know when you kind of look at the numbers is whether that's going to be sufficient to really tackle those at-risk acres. Sure. Because it seems like at the end of the day, you know, if we don't get out in front of it and treat those acres with prescribed burns, thinning, et cetera, then, then Mother Nature's going to treat it for us and we may not like the result. Right. Yeah, I think it seemed very obvious from what Camille talked about and what I've read that a fire's going to happen and, you know, you can either kind of, you know, manage it or use it to your benefit or kind of be constantly trying to react. Yeah, and I think Camille rightly pointed out there's going to need to be a really big public and policymaker education campaign because, you know, people aren't going to love having smoke that's sort of created on purpose, but you know, to her point, how do you, you know, how do you like your smoke? Um, right, right. I mean, I don't know about you, Todd. I mean, how, how do you like your smoke? Are you like a, are you a campfire guy or you prefer tobacco or, or cannabis? I mean, you're talking like a bong versus a pipe or like <laughs> what strain you're talking about? That's, that's. <laughs> no, in, in all seriousness, uh, she makes a great point, which is in Oregon, in our 2020 fire season, we had at least two weeks where we were the worst, some of the worst air quality in the world. Right. And if you think about trading that for some occasional hazy days, it seems like a, a fair trade. Yeah, definitely. You know, one, one of the things that I know you didn't get into a lot in this, in this episode, and I think hopefully we'll be, we can deal with in a future episode entirely would be logging. And I know that every time wildfire, forest fire comes up, uh, all I see across the internet and Facebook and everywhere else is, you know, log that. And why can't we log it? And we could have saved this fire if we had logged it. And everybody seems to be kind of under this misconception that if you just cut everything down first, that somehow in the long term, that's going to prevent wildfires. There's some studies that show, I think we, we found one here, uh, talked about the Cooney Ridge fire in Montana, that, you know, those heavily logged areas actually burned hotter and more severely versus the more kind of what you would call diverse forest that the public lands were on. Well, right. And I remember in that study seeing that they had done some treatments to the public lands. So, and that, yeah, when you had that side-by-side -side comparison where you had these acres that had been, you know, logged, they fared much worse. Right. I think spacing, obviously density of trees has, has a lot to do with this, but it makes sense to me that big trees, if you have modest fires at frequency to take care of what's down below that are moving through there very quickly, they're going to be resistant. They're going to stay. This this study we're talking about is only one study, of course, and it would be cool to to pick her brain more and on, on this on the logging part of this thing because I I'm sure that's a whole you know it's a whole topic into of itself and 
I know you you mentioned uh, kind of the permitting of building and where we're actually going to put homes, and that's a that's a whole nut to crack too. Yeah. So, what can each of us as individuals do for this week? We'd like to encourage people to thank their representatives in the House for passing the infrastructure bill with this additional funding to address wildfire risk reduction, and then we'd like to ask them to work to set aside enough long-term funding to ensure those 51 million acres of high-risk area identified by the Forest Service can be tackled, you know, over the next 10 years. And as always, we'll have talking points on our website. Awesome. So I think that's a wrap. Clearly more to come on the topic of, of wildfires and climate. Come back next week for more climate solutions, reasons for hope, and ways each of us can make a difference. Climate Optimist is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimist.co. That's climateoptimist.co. And follow us on social, Climate Optimist Podcast.